Welcome to Hollywood 2.0. It's Peter Katz and my coach, Rich Silverman. Today we welcome on the show TV writer Jane Espenson and writer, performer, web personality Brad Bell. A lot of you guys might know Jane Espenson as a writer on Torchwood, on Once Upon a Time, Caprica, Battlestar Galactica. And now Husbands, an online sitcom they co-created and Brad stars in. It's a romantic comedy about marriage equality. We discuss their process of telling stories online, adapting Husbands as a comic, and they teach us a few word puns. Uh, my name is Jane Espenson, and I'm Brad Bell. <laughs> and great. And let's give a little bit of information on your background. Obviously, everyone's done so many things, but like the the log line version. Uh. Let me try. Let me start from the top because that's the way to do things. Um, I'm Jane Espenson. I wrote for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Battlestar Galactica, Once Upon a Time, and other shows. And I am co-creator of Husbands. And I'm Brad Bell. I'm also co-creator of Husbands, and uh, I have worked as a consulting producer on pop-up video and an internet personality, doing writing and performing of uh, short-form satire on YouTube. So what's the origin story of your collaboration? It was an origin story. Well, it all started when I fell into a vat of radioactive <laughs> liquid. You know, which is not the most original thing, but hey, it's my origin story. What can I say? <laughs> and then uh, I saw him on YouTube and uh, we became Twitter buddies and then uh, we became friends and then we had a notion of working together. But that was all after the radioactive fluid. Did any of the radioactive fluid drip onto you, Jane? No, I was already super. Thanks for asking. She was actually, yeah, the mad scientist who had brewed the radioactive fluid. <laughs> so it all happened in her laboratory. <laughs> oh, my God. I made a monster. <gasps> Aw, you're my Frankenstein. <laughs> and you're Peter and I are sitting here wondering if we should just let you two riff for the next half hour. <laughs> it seems to be, be working. No. So um, I was wondering... What could uh, writers from TV and the web learn from each other since you're like this kind of, you know, this super team that got together? That is a fantastic question. We are not asked that often enough. I don't know if we've ever been asked that. Um, Cheeks, you talk about what you learned from me, then I'll talk about you. (laughs) Um, Well, I think think in general, I guess, uh, I don't think, um, I guess what you could learn from each other is that we're not really all that different. Um, yeah, I think that uh, the way especially things are going right now on the web, I mean, I don't think that, I think any distinction between television and the web is uh, to an extent sort of perceived and not necessarily um, truly there. Uh, I mean, you know, certainly there are different mediums and that one is is uh, connected online and, and the other is a broadcast medium. But I think in terms of the content you're creating, it's uh, more or less the same. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I – the things I learned from you, I don't think I learned from you because we come from different mediums, um, TV versus the web. It, it really is. It's exactly the same writing. It's just a TV show that you watch on a different box. But I learned a lot from you because as an experienced writer with a newer writer, I think I learned a certain uh, – uh, willingness to be flexible with the form and um, 
uh, I think you lean even more into the love of the sound of the language than I do and to sort of be, be freer with that and not worry so much about joke on a joke, which is sort of a, a cardinal rule of joke writing, which is that you don't want too many layers in a joke because it gets too thinky for the audience. And mm-hmm. Brad just sort of embraces that and to just sort of go with that. And I don't I think at him watching me as a more experienced writer, he, he probably learned some things about um, not really structure, but maybe about learning there's always a joke that it's all right to throw out a joke and look for another approach to a situation that, that you know, to trust your instincts and know that there's, that that well is sort of bottomless. Well, in, in simplicity, you're, you're very succinct and I am quite verbose. <laughs> so that's true. Um, I, I, I can look at something and not understand how to, how to make this, how do I make this three words? I need this idea in three words and, and you can do it in a minute. And, uh, so I, I feel like that, uh, is a huge help with efficiency and, and simplicity and clarity in the writing. Mm, I buy that. And Jane said that, that Brad has a, a love of language. Do you have, a, are you a fan of screwball comedies by any chance? Cause I was, I watched one of the episodes of husbands and there is that kind of old screwball comedy sort of bantering back and forth in the dialogue. Oh, totally. Like, especially, uh, yeah, the, the noir films in the thirties and, and, uh, yeah, that sort of rapid fire, uh, banter and the, the, the zingers and the one liners. I love that. Um, in, in, so many different genres, like not just noir, but, you know, great sitcom writing, uh, especially classic television. I mean, I, I grew up with, uh, television from the 1940s to the 1990s really. And, um, and everything in between. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I love songwriting and, and great pop songs. And I, I think that in a certain way, good dialogue, uh, especially with something like a, a young hip comedy is kind of like a good pop song. And, and there should be a musicality to the language and a rhythm to the way people speak because there is naturally. And uh, I think that finding the best of that and putting that on paper and, and having a great actor bring that to life is is really what helps make something pop is the sound of it. Sometimes when Brad will, is particularly proud of a piece of dialogue, he'll send it to me and he'll say, like, say it out loud. It's music. <laughs> it is. It's music. <laughs> and what about dealing with the time constraints. I mean, they're largely self-imposed, I suppose, but you know, husband season one, they were like two minute episodes and season two, you've expanded them. They're about seven or eight minutes. I think Mm -hmm. it's still not as long, obviously as a 22 minute sitcom on television. So do you find um, that you're structuring episodes in a different way than you would for a longer format? Actually not both seasons. If you stitch all the episodes together, you get 11 two-minute episodes or you get three eight-minute episodes, you still end up with about the length of a 22-minute sitcom. So what we do is we structure the whole season as if it was a traditional episode and then just cut up the banana bread into different piece, you know, size of slices. Um, but, but it's structured just like a traditional show. Yeah, especially um, uh, the second season is, is very much that way because it's three acts. You know, I think the first... Uh, was probably a little different because we wanted an act break every two minutes, which is unusual. But um, with the second season, you know, it was the beginning, the middle, and the end. So it, it's exactly like it would air uh, in a traditional broadcast format. And even that, even that act break every every 
two and a half pages or so is pretty traditional because that's about the length of a normal scene on a sitcom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so, and every scene ends on a blow. It ends on a, on a strong, hard joke. So it really still was pretty conventional, structurally. You've noticed with uh, Sundance this explosion of independent films and it was this movement and when you're younger and people are going to film school, they're like, wouldn't it be great to go to Sundance? And the festival was all that magic around that. Now, do you feel like the whole world of independence has moved online? Instead of, I have to put all my resources together and make this indie film, it's more, let's put our resources together and make a web series? Um, that's an interesting question. I think that because I started, you know, I came to Hollywood and started the, the film school thing. And, oh, I want to make my independent film. Uh, right as that was sort of dying because, I mean, it's, it's clearly, um, you know, they still have Sundance every year, but what I mean by that is the idea that you can spend 30 or a hundred thousand dollars and go, you know, win a bunch of awards and get your movie distributed. Uh, that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, and it's, it's not a smart way to make a movie. The, the smart way to make a movie is to have your distribution, secured and then get your funding and then make your movie. Um, so I think that now the internet is the distribution and that's what's changed is that if you make it, you have a distribution platform. So the focus is not so much distribution as it is finding an audience, uh, that can help you monetize and, and, uh, spread the word about what you have. Uh, so, in that sense, I think that it's changed, and um, I think that that's increasingly the, the way that it will, um, the way that it will head more and more. And um, it's interesting when you say find your audience. That's a that's an interesting thing because a lot of people are, are talking about let's pitch to executives or let's pitch to these festival programmers. You're saying let's reach the people. And let them decide what is valid content, what's great, and you're you're taking away all these middlemen. What? How does that work? Now that you're dealing with the fans, are they? Do you have to deal with them? Their beck and call? Because there's always, in a sense, there's always a back and forth. What's the difference between the back and forth of the decision makers versus this large group of fans? Well, that's interesting. Um, uh, I mean, the decision makers. I got, I got some. I got something on this. Well, they don't trust you. So I, I'll just say the executives. You know, they they trust that they know what is best, and I'm sure that in most cases they they probably do know more than a novice uh, creator. But the fans trust that you know best, and um, I think that that's probably the main difference. Um, and then Jane, you say something, but I, I have another thought on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say that you know our fans aren't just fans, but they also are essentially the financiers. They they used a Kickstarter to help produced the season two um and yet even though they are the ones we are appealing to the one the ones we want to we want to demonstrate that this audience is out there and um and we want to make them happy as backers we also don't want to stop trusting our own taste we don't want to do this by committee we don't want to pull them and say what do you want to see you know cheeks and brady go through this time i feel it's really important as a tv creator to write what you want to see if if I were looking to fill this hole in my viewing schedule. What would I want this show to be uh, and to write that? Because that will give you that purity of vision. That will give you that that Joss Whedon style, oh, my God, this is the show that I want but never knew I wanted kind of feeling. 
So I, I, I think you, you've got to respect the fans, but not, but you can't just become a short order cook for the fans. Yeah. And I think that especially when you're able to, to do that from the onset, that you find the people that like what your taste is. You know, if you, if your first project is the vision you have and it is to your taste and it's what you want to see, then the people that like it probably will like what you do next time around because they're the ones that saw something that they enjoyed, um, from the start. And I, I think the bottom line with the audience finding is, is that that's what executives want. I mean, people, and money and corporations go where the eyeballs are because it's all driven by advertising. You know, if you look at um, Psy, okay, do you think you could have gotten any executive to spend millions of dollars on a K-pop song in America? No, but now, you know, he's on the Ellen show and he's on the radio and he's at these huge award shows because the audience was there. So wherever the audience shows up, that's where the the money will go that's where the executives will show up and say we think you're brilliant do whatever you want and do you guys have a strategy for reaching that audience or like like a you know marketing strategy per se or are you relying sort of on social media and word of mouth those, um, those are definitely part of the marketing strategy i'll let, i'll let brad answer this though oh no I, I think it's as simple as saying that they're the same thing yeah yeah i i think I had someone say um, that it's very hard to publicize a web show. And it's like, yeah, except it, it seems hard because the obvious things you go, oh, we're right, okay, well, we'll tweet about it and we'll, um, we'll get some, you know, an email list going and we'll sort of use social media. And then you realize like, well, no, it's, it's not that hard to publicize it. It's just that it's, it's so obvious how to publicize it. Well, it's only hard to publicize it. I mean, I, I don't know who said that to you, but I hope they don't work in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> because marketing is as hard as you expect it to be. I mean, it's like sales. If I can't sell these leads, okay, well, then you can't sell those leads. You know, uh, I can sell these leads. These leads are mine. They're golden. Yeah, well, now you're going to sell some some product. It's it's all in how you're approaching it and what your attitude is toward it. How was your experience using Kickstarter? Um, this is a, a tool that a lot of people in our field are turning to now. And if you have any, you know, hints or tips you can give to people on, on what you found worked or what didn't work, uh, people would find that very useful, I think. We loved it. It was, it was fantastic for us. Um, I'm looking at an example of, a, of an outfit that came along after us that has used it in an exemplary way. The Thrilling Adventure Hour people, Ben Acker and Ben Blacker, have been raising money on their Kickstarter. I think it's still up and running. And they have done a really, really good job of after they raised their core goal, of setting up the the extended goals in a really um, compelling way, and so I would direct anyone to you know look at look the, the completed campaign campaigns just sit there on Kickstarter and you can go look at them. So I would suggest anyone go look at ours and look at the Thrilling Adventure Hour one that's still up um, um, because those are both ones that reach their goals. And those are uh, ours and Thrilling Adventure Hour are are examples of uh, projects that put out work before they asked for any money. They, they sort of found their audience first. And I think that's very important. I think that when you can provide an example um, of what you would do, which we did with season one, you know, we just, we made season one. And then it was after season one that we used Kickstarter. And so people already knew and already liked what we were doing. And I think that was 
probably the most effective part of our campaign was, oh, that thing that you did that I love. Yes, I would love more of that. Here is money. You know, it was it was about as simple as that. Oh, and I, I saw I looked at one recently that was doing very badly, that wasn't raising its money. And I was trying to figure out what why it wasn't raising its money. And I realized that the whole emphasis of the campaign was on here's what we can accomplish with the money. Here's here's how how we will use your money uh, instead of here's what you will get out right. of how we exactly. use your money. And right. I, you've got to keep the focus on the fans like we are. We, are, we want to give you more of this delicious confection. Mm -hmm. Not we want to use money because then we can do this and that will be good for us. Right. Well, and, and just, yeah, they don't care about the technicalities. Like I remember when, um, when we were talking about what to um, publicize about our campaign, you know, the different uh, incentives and things. And there was this question of, you know, do we focus on we'll upgrade the equipment and it'll look better and sound better. And, you know, that's, that's not important. Like your audience doesn't care. I mean, production value is important, but they're not going to understand the difference between, you know, a Canon and a Scarlet camera. Like that, that doesn't mean anything to them. So don't explain that to them. Tell them, you know, that they'll get longer episodes. They get more of, yeah, what they love or guest stars or whatever it might be. Are you going to be going back to Kickstarter for season three? If we did a key, season three, I would certainly always be open to Kickstarter. Um, uh, love Kickstarter. Yeah, they're great. Do you see a lot of the the progress with platforms like Machinima that have excelled on YouTube, creating premium content, that there's going to be more dollars migrating online? So people are not going to even say web series. They're just going to say this is a series and TV and webs could be relevant. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it'll be called television, just like we still say cell phone and cell phones haven't been cellular since the 90s. They're digital and it's a different, you know, it's a different thing. Or you say cable. Well, you don't have cable anymore. You have a it's it's digital. It's not, you know, and for a while it was called digital cable and it was sold like that. But, it, you know, we don't call things by by what they really are. And, and um, I actually think television has been. Uh, incorrectly labeled for the last 70 years. Um, and uh, I think that television is the internet. I think that it is more the, the realization of television than the broadcast platform ever was. And I, actually, I was thinking about this earlier. I think it'll be hard to explain to children born in 2012. It will be hard to explain to their generation that there was a distinction or a difference. You know, well, there was a television show, but it, it wasn't online. What is that? How? I mean, that's like saying there was a, a website that wasn't online. It won't make any sense. <laughs> you know, I just thought of an example of what you're doing, Cheeks. The um, when you know, we all, we still dial the phone, but when's the last time you saw a phone with a dial on it? Yeah. Upstairs in my parents' bedroom in Schaumburg, <laughs> Illinois, there is a phone hardwired into the wall from 1973 with a dial on it. Whoa. Cool. They'll say, "Don't touch that dial on the television." You know, don't touch that dial. Like, really, a dial? I don't think I've ever seen a dial in my life. I, I grew up with, you know. Oh my God, Brad! <laughs> and the phone. This is a serious piece of equipment from AT and T, and it weighs. It must yeah, weigh over yeah. ten pounds. You could really, if somebody came into the room that you didn't want in the room, you one, one good, good blow to the head with that phone would would uh, do the trick. Are they still paying paying a rental fee on it? Because you always rent your phone. You get part of your phone bill. I don't think that there's a rental fee on that, but I will check. I'll get yeah. back to you on that. <laughs> It'd be amazing if AT&T came back and claimed it after. <laughs> like, oh, that's ours. That's the property of AT&T. 
And um, when you look at the web, what is your favorite shows right now? What inspires you? Oh, on the web, um, Burning Love, I think, is an amazing comedy. It's a parody of The Bachelor, and I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so funny. Just hits every everything about The Bachelor that always struck you as odd and funny and perverse and weird. And But, but you kind of let it go by. Like, that she just finds every little point really, really smart. And, of course, you know, you can't, you can't ignore what Felicia has done with the Guild, which sort of started this whole thing. Well, yeah, and um, and very Mary Kate as well is a, a web series that uh, I just I love, and I I think she's on hiatus right now. But Elaine Carroll, she sort of had this character, and and uh, it's a parody of Mary Kate Olsen, and I think it's great. It's really punchy, and it's light, and it's short, and her writing is so strong, and her use of of wordplay and like what we were talking about is just so sophisticated and clever and. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely a standout of mine that I've always admired. And of those three, I would say it's probably very Mary Kate that most influenced us because that was the one we sat down and watched that that Brad showed me before we started writing to sort of go like, here's how short little episodes can work. And it was like, oh, I get it now. Now let's talk about, drumroll please, brand extensions, which you have started to do with, uh, with the graphic novel. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that was that we did not start out thinking, oh, and then we'll make this a comic book. But at a certain point, uh, it started to make a lot of sense. A lot of people were sort of making jokes with us about my sci-fi background and, and this, you know, should we, we could do a sci-fi episode. It's like, well, that's not really what we do, but well, Hey, I have this relationship with dark horse. They would be interested in, in getting in on the husband's brand. Cause it's a lovely brand. Let's, uh, let's put these together. And we, we, even after we knew we were going to do these issues, we kind of didn't know how the writing was going to go until we dove into it. And Brad really embraced it. Well, yeah. What excited me most was um, the ability to to get to better know these characters and for these characters to to know each other better uh, in completely different scenarios. You know, how do how do two people react? in uh, a coffee shop is completely different than how do two people react uh, on the moon, you know, facing a detonation of a bomb. And then it's, you find out a lot about a person. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And to be able to entertain our audience while we're not um, producing the show, because the show does take, you know, so much time and money and, and is, is a machine that cannot um, run year round. And, and the comic book, um, world just just let us take these characters and, and have something to offer for when the show when the season ended and um, yeah it, it just it, it was so fun to do and it's so fun to release and to see people embracing it and and enjoying it and and to see these characters in these different universes is um, is really really rewarding. People who want to read the comic books, they're they're online, they're digital comics. You go to digital dot dot com. And look around, look at the new releases. On uh, every Wednesday, there'll be a new issue uh, for six weeks, and we're really, really proud of them. You can also go to Husbands the Series, and we'll always have a link um, on the homepage. And and these characters are literally on the moon in the comic books. No, they're they're in six different comic book scenarios. So in one week, they're um, they're superheroes, or they're um, 
super spies. <laughs> and <laughs> they're, they're different scenarios. And the one that's coming out tomorrow is they're in a uh, fairy tale land scenario, sort of once upon a timey. How about husband's action figures? Oh, my God. We would love to have action figures. We should talk to some action figure people, Brad. Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, I, and we were having this station with someone. I can't remember who it was, but I will only agree to action figures if they're anatomically correct. <laughs> now, we have seen the comic treatment, potentially the toy version. Is there any plans for games or TV or film to expand the story? I think we've got our storytelling mechanism um, pretty pretty great right now. Um, we've got the show, we've got the comic books, um, but I could I don't know I I don't know where to expand it more. I like the idea of like a fully immersive uh, visual audio um, like four D. <laughs> It's like IMAX, maybe. Oh, a hologram, holodeck kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, so there you maybe, go. Yeah, like a, make a Husband's the Ride, I think. Husband's the Ride. You know, did you see that Disney just bought Lucasfilm? Yes, that was the, the big entertainment news of the day. What do you think about that? I, I, I don't know what to think of it, except that, that surely an operation of that size would have room to make Husband's the Ride. Well, yes, absolutely. And... <laughs> So, yeah, you know, <laughs> Disney's already got Star Tours, a Star Wars ride in Tomorrowland. Uh, where do you put Husbands the Ride? Well, Adventureland, I, I, Fantasyland, I, I, Frontierland? Fantasyland. Yeah, Fantasyland. We have to establish that um, Cheeks is a really big Star Wars nerd and uh, <laughs> that he's kind of ashamed of it because he thinks that it's uh, it doesn't match his brand as sort of a tabloid personality. So he's sort of like a, a closeted nerd because, you know, he's such an oh, open yeah. person. You think like he lives so openly and he is who he is fearlessly and actually has this huge secret. Uh, and oh my so, god! And, and and then he learns he learns about what Brady's life has been like. Like he understands Brady's exactly. point of view more from having. Exactly. Oh my god, that's great! Understand each other better, and then once you establish that, maybe we can start um, uh, a, a line of of the franchise where they uh, sort of escape into fantasy because mm -hmm. uh, he visualizes himself as is you know Han Solo and Brady's Luke Skywalker, and then they go on this whole adventure. Um, yes, yeah, so maybe once we've got that up and running, then it has been <laughs> All right, and um, I see that there's also an activism side to uh, Husbands uh, with uh, the event in uh, Utah. How do you use this show to mobilize activism? Oh, this, I, I, is it activism or altruism, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's yeah, we are we are going to Salt Lake City on November 11th. Um, again, if you if you know anything about what we're doing, follow at Team Husbands or go to husbandstheseries.com. And yeah, we're going to be doing a screening and a panel there to benefit the local homeless youth shelter. Yeah, uh, and and they reached out to us and um, and Sean Hemian, who plays Brady, my co-star, is uh, sort of heading that up. I mean, and it's just, it's something that's important to us because, you know, there's such a disproportionate amount of, of gay homeless youth there. And like I said, the homeless shelter said, would you help us out? And we said, you know, we'd be happy to. And the response that we've had 
in terms of donations and support and, and people coming out, uh, is, has just been really incredible. And I, I hope that it's something that we do more of because honestly, it wasn't something that we set out to do like, Oh, and, and now we're going to help homeless gay youth because we have a show. It, it just, it wasn't something that had occurred to us. And now that um, they've contacted us and we've initiated the, the project, it's, it feels like something we should be doing as much as we can. Absolutely. When I look at the example that's been set by the brown coats and the, the Can't Stop the Serenity people who've taken Firefly and turned it into this amazing fundraising tool for charity, for Equality Now and other operations, um, Trevor Project benefits from them. Uh, it's just, it's it's amazing. And, and I would love to see husbands turn into something uh with a fraction of that kind of power to, to help people. The, the number of young men I've met who've told me the story about being kicked out by their parents, it, it, it breaks your heart. And you, you realize like, like that's why I wanted to do the, um, the Billy issue of um, issues of Buffy, the vampire slayer comic book season nine that, that just came out um, was a similar reason is that, you know, there's, there's people out there who are, who are not being served the way they should. And, um, and anything that, that husbands can do or Buffy can do, uh, I want to make sure it gets done. Kind of a, a, along the same lines, when you're writing these episodes, h- how do you find a balance between character, story, and any sort of political or, or social statement that you're trying to make? Or does, does the political stuff not really come into your mind? You just write as good of a story and as great characters as you can and let uh, the social political aspects sort of just flow from that naturally. It does flow pretty naturally because if you if you like this young couple and you're rooting for them, you should be able to identify with them and then have the fact that they are a sex couple kind of fall away. Although we did make a rather politicized story for our second season. Yeah, I mean, the politics is definitely there. I think you have to have your point of view. And I think that it um, is made better when you... Th- think everything through, uh, you know, what, what am I saying? What other things parallel that? What are some metaphorical scenarios we can create that show that, you know, rather than, I mean, it's the easiest thing in the world to have a character state their point of view. So, okay. Have a character state the point of view. Now have it stated in a way that that character would say it don't all of a sudden become a political mouthpiece you know um Haley for example when she talks about the uh the epic poem of the Trojan condom and she completely gets the facts wrong but the idea is right and that's very Haley and uh you know creating scenarios and and especially I think your your main objective uh in the plot should be based around whatever um point of view it is that you're supporting politically. Um, I think it's, there's a balance to it, but I don't actually think that it's um, as a diff- as difficult a code to crack as people think. Uh, it just takes a little bit of, uh, just don't go for the first, you know, well, how are we going to express the idea that da, 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 oh, a character can say it. Well, no, don't have a character say it. Like, let's come up with some sort of metaphorical, you know, the interview, for example, when they when they um, each take on a different role is is a microcosm for the spectrum of the way that uh, gay people present themselves or argue that they should present themselves. And um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's um what is it, Jane? What am I trying to say? It's a creative, it's a, 
I don't know what you're trying to say, Brad, but you're saying it well. Okay. Well, <laughs> you really are, though. You're, you're talking about, like, yeah, just, just subtle ways that you use storytelling to both hide your agenda and make your agenda powerful at the same time. And, and I think agendas become a bad word. In a writer's room, you never want to be accused of, of coming at a story from the point of view of an agenda. But in fact, all storytelling does. Good storytelling starts with a reason to tell the story. And, and the, you know, the thing that you're trying to have, the bottom line that you want the audience to walk away with, that your list of the things you want the audience to walk away with is your agenda. And so I, I, it's not a bad thing to go in with, with something that you're trying to say with your episode. In fact, it's absolutely necessary. And, and Brad is sort of listing narrative tricks that, that allow you to do that without the audience feeling like they've been educated. Right, because it, it's about entertaining. Exactly. And you, you say hide your agenda and it's, it's not a nefarious, you know, oh, we're trying to sneak an agenda in on you. It's no, we, we want to place the agenda under something that is entertaining and pops and sizzles and dazzles because that's what you're there for in the first place. So, right. But if you don't, if you go away, not having learned anything or, or not having at least been had a little bit of like, Oh, I never looked at it that way. Then, then you're going to walk away feeling unnourished. And I, I think people, people, people talk about like Seinfeld is a show that was about nothing, no hugging, no learning. It's not really true. If you if you look at episodes of Seinfeld, you'll realize that that in fact they're saying something, even if they're saying something negative with a nod. Like ultimately, you can't trust people. You know, there's a little, but there's a little wink behind it where you sort of know that there's there's a smirk of like, you know, there there's a message there. There's an agenda. Yeah, absolutely. It was the um, founders of the Ig Nobel Prize, I think, that said uh, the, what their philosophy was: first make them laugh, then make them think. I would, when do you I make would them say cry? Make, make them think by making them laugh, but it's it's much the same. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it, I think what we're saying is the same thing. It's a semantics thing. It's but you start with, oh, that's so funny, and now that I've realized that that's funny, and I'm laughing to it. Oh wait, that funny thing has a thing there that's right. making think, and uh, yeah, they walk away with uh, uh, something to think about. And when when do you hit people over the head with the rotary phone in your parents' bedroom? <laughs> That sounds like a funny scene. Well, you would do that right after some character clearly states the political agenda of the piece. And you, <laughs> I don't know. He has a phone to the head. <laughs> <laughs> and if I know us, we'd work a pun into it. Oh, totally. Okay, wait. Let's do it. Phone, phone, home, phone. That rings a bell. Oh, there you go. Actually, we have a joke very similar to that in um, the, next con- the con- next comic book that comes out where a character is being struck by a thought as they're about to be struck by a club. And the, the Cheeks character says, like, it's about, it's hitting you now, isn't it? Something like that about the realization. It's is- so clever. Jane's a, uh, what are you, a, you're the number one fan of puns. You're a, you're a pun-making machine. You're a pun factory. Yeah, yeah. Says you. We're both. You're as punny as I am. Mm, I don't know if I'm as punny. <laughs> you, you guys have really great rapport. That's obvious even over the, a Skype call. What, what Can you let us in on your working method a little bit? It's surprising. Well, I don't know, surprisingly, but we don't generally sit side by side and write. It's an email conversation. Uh, Brad writes a draft, he emails it to me, I rewrite it, I send it back, he takes out everything I did and puts his stuff back in, and we just repeat until we're exhausted, and we've got the last pass gets their jokes in. 
Um, yeah, we're, we're very charming and engaging on the internet, but we have nothing to say to each other in person. <laughs> we're so better email. <laughs> That's not true. We talk all the time, but, but for writing, we really do sort of take turns with fingers on the keyboards. We don't, we don't sit there and pace around and, and me saying, I'll try this joke, type it in, Brad. Uh, that It'll never work. And then I'm <laughs> out the window and hitting her over the head with a phone. <laughs> Did it? Did the did a working relationship change at all from season one to season two? Oh, what a good question! I don't think so. I think we did it the same way. Yeah. Yep. Although and we and any like any 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 changes to like at least the the way either the production or way you approach the story that you would see any that's like a major difference between either uh, seasons or uh, or even beyond that from would you look at the future seasons? Sure. I think that season one of any show or the pilot of any show, because we told only told one story in season one, all, all told, um, that's always very different because it's the story that has to set up who everybody is set up. You know, we did a situation, uh, a premise pilot where we actually see how they got married um, instead of just like there could be any number of episodes. So that always has a different feel to it because the storytelling is a little different. And in fact, we did a little something with season one where Episodes one through eight actually complete the story. Nine, 10, 11 are a little more of a sort of a Bible for the show of here's the kind of, the kind of situation they could find themselves in. They get a dog. They disagree about the bed. Is there space in the drawer? Like it was much more a sort of here's a, here's a little bouquet of things we're going to offer. So that was some very different storytelling. Season two was much more like here is a 22-minute story beginning to end, tightly structured all the way through. All right. Um, and is there any uh, future projects that you like to talk about? Um, uh, keep reading the comic books. Uh, keep watching at Team Husbands for announcements about uh, about the future of husbands. And uh, I think that's. Oh, and the comic book will be collected in a in a hardcover edition uh, uh, after after all the issues are out. So keep looking for news about that. Yeah. Brad, promote away. Um, everything that Jane just said is all the stuff that is that I would also say. Husbandstheseries.com, lovehusbands.com, at Team Husbands, at Go Cheeks Go. There you are. And at Jane Espenson. Yes, and her too. <laughs> um, and if you have any trouble finding husband stuff, you forget how to find it, you're confused about your computer, just Google the word husbands and that you'll find, you'll find us. You have a nice sunny day in L.A., and we'll do the same. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hollywood 2.0. You can follow my co-host Rich Silverman at richsilverman.com. You can check me out at petercats.net. Feel free to contact us with any feedback or questions. Make sure to subscribe to Hollywood 2.0 on iTunes.